a number of years ago, uh, I was spending some time out in the San Francisco area I used to live, and I was uh, informed that a teacher that I knew would be giving a, an evening, leading a meditation, giving a Dhamma talk, and uh, I was able to go. So um, this was someone that I had uh, practiced with, a teacher that I knew from having spent time uh, in the monastery where, where he's the abbot. It happened to be a monk and, and had done retreats with uh, him. And I had great respect for him as a teacher and uh, for his commitment to practice, to his life as a monk. And uh, so I went to this uh, evening and began with uh, some uh, devotional chanting and uh, Offerings and then a period of meditation and then and the Ajahn uh, gave a Dhamma talk and um, I remember the words he he opened the talk with they they struck me quite uh, strongly and have stayed with me he said I've been a monk for over twenty five years now and I want you to know that I haven't gotten anything out of it which um, was a, a good attention getter certainly got my attention. <laughs> Okay, what's that about, you know? I mean, if we think about someone like that, you know, who's dedicated their life in a very uh, profound way to following the teachings of the Buddha, you know, he's he's, uh, adopted this uh, austere lifestyle by most of our standards, given up so much, you know, and owns nothing but a ball and a set of robes and dependent for his, his meals every day, Someone has to be moved to offer something or he, he would not eat. You know, this is a, a big commitment. And, you know, why would he say then, you know, he hasn't gotten anything out of it? What was he meaning by that? You know, he, he clearly wasn't, you know, about to announce his intentions to disrobe. It wasn't, that wasn't the point there. You know, what was he talking about? What was he pointing to? You know, we live in, in such a culture of acquisitiveness, isn't it? In so many ways, you know, we, we base our happiness and really often the sense of who we are on getting and having things and experiences. And we define success in terms of getting and having, define ourselves in this way and we can bring some of this with us to retreat, to our practice, don't we? You know, we, we come to a period in, of practice and we have an agenda often, you know, we want to get, we want to get peaceful, we want to get more calm, or want to get concentrated, want to get enlightened. At least we want to get our money's worth, kind of the bottom line for us. And, you know, we might see that we bring some of this kind of attitude when we come to retreat, you know. And, and then we can at times feel frustrated or dissatisfied, you know, because we don't feel like we're getting it. We don't get what the teachers are talking about or we, we don't get, see that we're getting any more calm or peaceful or getting more loving or any of those nice things that are supposed to come. You know, we've gone to all this trouble, a lot of trouble to get here given up so much, and we want something to show for that, for our efforts, for our sacrifice. 
And so I think the monk I was talking about, you know, when he made this statement, he wasn't saying that that, that life, that his commitment, that that wasn't of any value. Certainly that's not what he was pointing at. You know, and he was very happy and contented in his demeanor and seemed to be very confident and at ease. And he went on to explain, you know, that, that the value that he had gotten from choosing that lifestyle and from his commitment to the Buddha's teachings and the practice and the path came not so much from anything he had gotten as from all that he had let go of in that life. I remember once uh, hearing Jack Cornfield talking about, you know, coming to a retreat. It's, this isn't the shopping mall, this is the dump. You know, we can, we can come to the retreat center and it's like going to the mall, right? We have our list of things we want to get. And he say, you know, it's funny, but it's true, right? This is the dump. <laughs> it's where we jettison things. But it's worth looking at our attitude, you know, how do we hold, hold our time, hold our practice in this regard, you know? I know for myself, I've spent so much time over the years trying to get something from my practice, trying to get concentrated, trying to get wise or loving or equanimous or whatever. And yet, you know, ultimately what we get out of our practice, whatever results we might point to, they come from what we let go of, don't they? What we abandon, what we relinquish. This language is throughout the Buddha's teaching, this abandonment, relinquishing, letting go. And the end of suffering is realized by abandoning the cause of suffering. This is the heart of the Buddha's teachings. It's not by getting something, not by attaining some sublime state of mind, right? It might helpful, might be helpful along the way, but we let go of the cause of suffering. And this is this is the heart of the Buddha's teachings in the Four Noble Truths. And especially I'll read the second and third of the Four Noble Truths. <clears throat> And what is the noble truth of the origin, the cause of suffering? The craving that makes for further becoming, accompanied by passion, delight, relishing now here, now there. That is, the craving for sensuality, for becoming and for non-becoming. And what is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering? It's the remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving. All those words, fading, cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, letting go. That's what the Buddha was always pointing at. This is a quotation from uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi. The Buddha likened his teaching, the path as He likened it to swimming against the current of a river. Bhikkhu Bodhi said this, the Buddha describes his teaching as running contrary to the way of the world. The way of the world is the way of desire, and the unenlightened who follow this way flow with the current of desire, seeking happiness by pursuing the objects in which they imagine they will find fulfillment. The Buddha's message of renunciation states exactly the opposite. The pull of desire is to be resisted 
and eventually abandoned. Desires to be abandoned, not because it is morally evil, but because it is a root cause of suffering. Thus renunciation, turning away from craving, and its drive for gratification becomes the key to happiness and freedom. So the Pali word for renunciation is nekama. And it's, uh, it's the third on the list of, of the ten paramis. Last uh, week I wrote, read the list of the paramis, these beautiful qualities that the Buddha perfected over countless lifetimes. One of the ways we can look at the path is the perfecting of these paramis. <clears throat> and so Donna and Sila I spoke about last week being the first two, nekama, renunciation, the third of them. You know, we don't use the word renunciation so much just in our daily lives. It's even in our culture most of the time, maybe a little more in retreat centers. But it's not something we go around going on and on about renunciation or, or even talking about it at all. And it might be interesting, you know, to sit with this word. You know, what are the connotations that come in our, in our minds, in our hearts, you know, how does it sit in there? What's our response to renunciation as a word, as a concept? You know, we often can see, hear this, and it strikes us as a, some kind of self-inflicted punishment or some kind of denying, life-denying thing or a repression. It can bring up some connotations at times of bleakness or lack or something like that. And <clears throat> We think, well, renunciation means we, we aren't going to enjoy the things of the world anymore. You know, that is, renunciation means our lives become some bland, gray, dull thing. And even if we acknowledge that there might be some value there, it's not something that we, we think, oh, great, and look forward to renunciation. As, and that sound great. Renunciation, we don't hold it that way as often. <clears throat> So I want to try to maybe rehabilitate the word a bit <laughs> in this talk and point to the possibility that, that we can see it not just as, as a word, but as a quality or a principle or something that we could actually learn to understand, befriend, and, and make a meaningful part of our vocabulary and uh, see the way that it is actually an essential, maybe the essential, key to the path, to our practice. <clears throat> you know, if you think about it, what we're doing here, <clears throat> all the different practices that we might undertake on retreat here, they're pretty much the same thing that people have been doing who followed this path for almost 2,600 years. You know, you read the poems, the descriptions from some of the early monks and nuns, and they talk about a lot of the same stuff. understanding impermanence, seeing the elemental nature of materiality, all kinds of things that it's the same stuff. Nothing has changed so much. And this teaching, this tradition, it's, it's a renunciate teaching. That's, it's, that's where it comes from. And as we sit and walk on retreat and connect with mindfulness to our changing moment-to-moment experience, 
what we're doing in that is exploring this terrain, this landscape of renunciation. <clears throat> you could say we're learning to let go moment by moment. And it's really, this is the heart of this journey. And we see on retreat especially maybe, but any time in our lives we can see in just in our own mind, hearts, in our own bodies, and in our relationships to others and to the minds and hearts of others, we see how suffering arises in our lives over and over. And if we strip away the stories and the explanations about this and, and all our beliefs about it, we see that clinging to anything at all leads to suffering, leads to struggle. It's like clinging, grasping, holding on. It's like volunteering to suffer. We can see this in our lives. And so renunciation, letting go, it's, it's a response of really of wisdom and of compassion in the face of that suffering. It's the movement of understanding and of kindness and of care. And if we look beyond our own personal lives, outside our own mind and heart, and at the world, and there's so much suffering, so many realms, big and small, the wars and divisions and torments and difficulties, people's lives, and, and we see that when we touch that immensity of that, at times it seems so huge, we find that the most meaningful response to that, maybe the most true kind of real response, must have and does have its roots in compassion and renunciation. And when suffering, when we see, when we touch suffering in our hearts, in the world, then we see that the response to that, the response of understanding, when we touch it with understanding, we see that compassion and renunciation are the the most useful, the truest response to that. Of course, when we encounter suffering in our hearts, in the world, from a place of delusion and lack of clarity, then there's a different response that often comes, isn't it? We see aversion and resistance, denial, these kinds of knee-jerk responses that, that happen so often. And we, tempt, we try to run away from or back away from or push away from suffering. It happens so much. Get away from it. Get it away. <clears throat> it said that the Buddha, when he finally decided he would teach, he didn't want to at first after his awakening. He said it would be just be vexing. No one would get it. It's too subtle, too profound. But then he was moved out of compassion for beings and beings. He saw everyone. He surveyed the world. He saw beings trying to be happy, trying to find happiness, and at the same time doing the very thing that caused them to suffer. And so moved out of compassion, he decided to teach. The Mahakaruna, great compassion. But as I, I was talking earlier and saying that we don't hold pronunciation, renunciation, this practice, as particularly attractive, desirable, even if we see it as an ideal that we might admire or, 
or something that, that the importance of it is acknowledged, somehow we feel it. You know, we might at best regard it as something that might be good for us, you know, maybe like bad tasting medicine or you know, we think, well, it's, it's okay for monks and nuns. Mistakenly thinking that that we won't enjoy life anymore, we'll be separated from any pleasures of of life. <clears throat> this is from a sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya. Then Tapusa, the householder, went to the venerable Ananda, and on arrival, having bowed down to him, sat to one side. And as he was sitting there, he said to venerable Ananda. Venerable Ananda, sir, we are householders who indulge in sensuality, delight in sensuality, enjoy sensuality, rejoice in sensuality. For us, indulging in sensuality, delighting in sensuality, rejoicing in it, renunciation seems like a sheer drop-off. Yet I've heard that in this doctrine and discipline, the hearts of the very young monks leap up at renunciation, grow confident, steadfast, and firm, seeing it as peace. So right here is where this doctrine and discipline is contrary to the great mass of people, that is, this issue of renunciation. You know, we can feel a bit like Tapusa, the householder. You know, it sounds like a sheer drop-off. It doesn't sound so good. We want to delight and enjoy the world of sense pleasures and and what's wrong with that? You know, life is to be lived and enjoyed, isn't it? Nothing inherently wrong with enjoying the things of the world. There's no judgment about that in the Buddha's teachings. And the Buddha described in the suttas the kinds of worldly happiness that, that one can enjoy. He described four kinds of happiness in one place. He said, these are the four kinds of happiness that can be attained by a lay person who enjoys sensual pleasures. Which four? The happiness of possession, the happiness of enjoyment, the happiness of debtlessness, and the happiness of blamelessness. And then he de- describes these in detail in that teaching. <clears throat> so the Buddha doesn't judge happiness that's born of enjoyment of worldly pleasures. He points to their limitation. <clears throat> and so when Tapusa said that, that it seems like a sheer drop-off, this doctrine of renunciation, he's pointing to a, a real misunderstanding, kind of a fundamental misunderstanding about this, that we don't understand that the energy of grasping and craving, this is the root cause of suffering. It's not inherent. There's nothing inherent in the objects of of what one might desire, the objects of our desires. There's nothing inherent in the objects of worldly pleasure, enjoyment. It's in this craving, this grasping, that movement of the heart. And so then the Buddha offers us this chance to make a trade, to exchange a lesser happiness for a greater one. Jeff in an article says, it's like trading candy for gold. I like that image. He says this, an intelligent sacrifice is any way, any one in which you'd gain a greater happiness by letting go of a lesser one. 
in the same way you'd give up a bag of candy if offered a pound of gold in exchange. In other words, an intelligent sacrifice is like making a profitable trade. This analogy is an ancient one in the Buddhist tradition. I'll make a trade, one of the Buddha's disciples once said. I'll make a trade, aging for the ageless, burning for the unbound, for the highest peace, the unexcelled safety from bondage. And this stanza from the Dhammapada that speaks to this. If by giving up a lesser happiness, one could experience a greater happiness, a wise person would renounce the lesser to behold the greater. But most of the time, we want to keep the candy and get the gold too, right? We're afraid that we'll give up every kind of pleasure and and then we'll wind up empty-handed, you know. We know that at least candy tastes good, even if we are willing to admit that it's maybe a transient pleasure. You know, what is this gold that we're promised? We don't trust it. So continuing with the sutta, with Tapusa the householder, you know, Ananda takes Tapusa to the, he said, this calls for a a talk with the Buddha. He takes him there and he explains what Tapusa has said. And and this is the Buddha's reply to that. He said, so it is. Even I myself, before my awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, I thought, renunciation is good, seclusion is good. But my heart didn't leap up at renunciation. It didn't grow confident, steadfast, or firm, seeing it as peace. The thought occurred to me, What is the cause? What is the reason why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation, doesn't grow confident, steadfast, or firm, seeing it as peace? And then the thought occurred to me, I haven't seen the drawback of sensual pleasures. I haven't pursued that theme. And I haven't understood the reward of renunciation. I haven't familiarized myself with that. That's why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation, doesn't grow confident, steadfast, and firm seeing it as peace. So there's two ways of understanding that the Buddha points to here that are useful. Seeing the drawbacks of following desire as a pathway to happiness and seeing the rewards of renunciation. This is from uh, the Thai. This is again from Bhikkhu Bodhi. He said, contemplating the dukkha inherent in following desire is one way to incline the mind to renunciation. Another way is to contemplate directly the benefits flowing from renunciation. To move from desire to renunciation is not, as might be imagined, to move from happiness to grief or from abundance to destitution. It is to pass from gross entangling pleasures to an exalted happiness and peace from a condition of servitude to one of self-mastery. Desire ultimately brings fear and sorrow, but renunciation gives fearlessness and joy. That's a strong statement, that renunciation actually brings fearlessness and joy. I mean, who wouldn't want to make a trade in that way? That would be a wise trade, wouldn't it, to trade fear and sorrow for fearlessness and joy. That's a no-brainer. 
for a trade to make. So renunciation is seen as so important because it really goes to the very heart of the practice of freedom. And so rather than than being something bleak or dismal, like a hair shirt that we might put on to purge ourselves of, of attachments, it's seen as a practice of joy, of happiness. And the ultimate fruition is the greatest happiness and peace. And this is from Ajahn Chah. He said, do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you, get low, if you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. We see this in our lives, don't we? In our minds, in our hearts. We see the peace that comes when the forces of craving and desire, desire do fall away. When we've been caught and then we're freed from that. But it's because we often see desire pursuing objects of our desire as, as a means to happiness that we remain in bondage to that. But if we look at it, if we really take the time and, and look, we see that the force of desire, how it operates, that there's always a quality of dukkha associated with it sooner or later. Desire has the tendency to tell us that there's something lacking in our lives, something that we need in order to be happy, to feel complete. You know, this, we don't have to look far to see this arising at times, you know, this sense of longing, of lack, this feeling that things aren't good enough now, or that we're not good enough, that something somehow is missing. But then if we do satisfy a desire, how long is it before there's a new one that arises? You know, we see this so much, even just with simple things. I was thinking of a simple example. You know, I like to ride, I have a nice bike. I really like to ride my bike. And it's really a nice one. Looks good and it runs really well. And and I have lots of nice gear, you know, more than enough. So I should be satisfied, huh? But, you know, all it takes is an ad from some bike shop or an email of a sale at Performance Cyclery, and, and then I'm looking for something to want in there. It's catalog mind. You know, I saw a picture, an article in a newspaper. People who had lined up, some of them had had spent the night on the sidewalk in front of this store in order to be able to buy, be the first in line to buy this new cool electronic gadget, you know, and then, and then the people were applauding the person who had gotten the first one, you know, as they came out of the store. It's just this like, okay, what's that about? You know, is that going to really make you happy? Reminds me of this cartoon someone gave me. It showed someone with a, one of these things in a shop and they're talking to a clerk there at the help desk and they're saying, okay, just one more question. Will it make me happy? You know, it does everything else, right? (coughs) 
But the, the demands of desire, they're endless, right? It's endless, this energy. And each desire that arises, it, it asks that the thing, the object, that it last and that it be, this be the thing that finally does it, right? Does the trick. But nothing lasts. And, and then we're off looking for the next thing so soon, often. And every time we follow these feelings of lack, these feelings of insufficiency, we're reinforcing that feeling of need as though the sufficiency, the feeling of wholeness, of completeness, of freedom is dependent on conditions. But what the Buddha was pointing at in his teaching, you know, the peace and freedom that he was pointing at was, was never dependent on conditions. It's not determined by that in any way. It's unconditional. And any peace or freedom that we might find that depends on conditions isn't a real, isn't the real thing. It never could be a true freedom or peace. Because things are always changing, aren't they? Conditions subject to change. I mean, that's, that's just so fundamental in this understanding. Nothing lasts for very long. Again, from Bhikkhu Bodhi. All the objects of desire are impermanent, whether it be wealth, power, position, other persons. Separation is inevitable, and the pain that accompanies separation is proportional to the force of attachment. Strong attachment brings strong suffering. Little attachment brings little suffering. No attachment brings no suffering. Of course, we see, you know, how difficult it is to let go of, right? If we could just let go, we could go home tomorrow. But it's hard. There's a poem in the collection of the Enlightenment poems of the early nuns that speaks to this. This is uh, from a nun named Vadesi. She said, it was 25 years since I left home and I hadn't had a moment's peace. Uneasy at heart, steeped in longing for pleasure, I held up my arms and cried out as I entered the monastery. You know, it can feel like this. We, we've been coming on retreats for 25 years and we sit down and it feels like, God, I haven't had a moment's peace that whole time. You know, we work so hard just to get here, find some moments of stillness away from our busy lives and we sit down and what do we find, you know? This mind and heart that are raging and racing and all over the map, <clears throat> caught up in this restless movement. And we've seen it over and over, haven't we? And this movement between desire and aversion, so much of the time, that's what we see. Wanting, not wanting, over and over. <clears throat> Luckily, Vadesi's poem, it, it goes on. I didn't read the whole thing. It has a happy ending. I'll read the rest. I went up to a nun I thought I could trust. She taught me the Dhamma, the elements of body and mind, the nature of perception and earth, water, fire, wind. I heard her words and sat down beside her. Now I have entered the six realms of sacred knowledge. I know I have lived before, and the eye of heaven is pure. I know the minds of others. I have great magic powers, and I have annihilated all of the obsessions of mind. The Buddha's teaching has been done. And so even though at times we see and feel like this letting go of this power, 
of desire and craving seems so hard. We don't feel like it seems like it's still there so potently. But when we take the time to look and come to retreat, find some moment of quiet, we'll see that there is movement and there are times when it falls away and that, and we see change and that we are moving, even if it seems slowly, incrementally towards peace and freedom. And it's good and important and really crucial, I think, not to discount this kind of movement. But it is happening, however slowly it might feel at times. And what we're doing in our practice is undoing some very, very powerful, old, deep conditioning. And that takes some time. But every time we're able to let go of desire and craving in a moment, in a moment when it falls away, we're putting out the flames of of dukkha, of suffering in that moment. And in that moment, it might not last, but our hearts are free. We can touch that. It's what Buddha Dasa calls momentary nibbana. It's coolness there. And so then we pass in that moment from this entangling, more coarse kind of pleasure to a more exalted state. We go from a condition of servitude, of slavery, to self-mastery. And we can see then at times that even in the midst of strong desire, craving, wanting, that we sometimes find a place of stillness and that we can just let that arise and pass away, just be there as it is. And there's no movement of the mind or heart in relation to it. There is ease there. And if we can just rest in the way things are in the moment, allowing this energy of craving and this sense of lack that is underlying that, we allow it to rise and pass away. We find those moments of deep peace, of freedom in that moment. Really to, to touch that directly in our lives, in our hearts. So I've been talking a lot about the energy of desire. But we don't have to look far at times to see the energy of aversion in our hearts. You know, these voices, sometimes they're whispers, sometimes they're shouts. The blamings, the not likings, the criticisms. Intolerance, impatient. And we can feel the suffering of this so strongly, acutely at times in our lives. You know, can we let these arise also? Let these voices, these waves of resistance, avoidance, denial, let them arise and pass away rather than following them into reactivity. Rather than believing all the stories that come up about them, what they mean, stories that reinforce fear and anger. Train ourselves to be still, knowing it for what it is, allowing it to arise and fall away, and let it go. And to actually care for it, to hold it with kindness, the way we might hold a frightened or angry child. To hold it carefully, let it rise and 
and then let it go. And so there's a practice of kindness. Renunciation can be seen as a practice of kindness. I let go of struggle, fear, resentment, these manifestations of aversion. And so often they're turned on ourselves and we shift from a posture of resistance and denial to one of kindness with that. And any time we can do that, we're touching the freedom that runs throughout the Buddha's teaching. We're touching the happiness and peace of renunciation, of letting go. <clears throat> you know, often our, our, maybe our first relationship, or we come into contact often with renunciation through, not so much through a conscious understanding or choice or intention. You know, often it's more involuntary through some loss in our lives. You know, maybe a death or, or our bodies failing, separation from one who we love, and we mourn the loss of that. You know, letting go often just thrust upon us. It's not, not of our choosing. <clears throat> it's just the reflection of life's uncertainty at times and all the inevitable changes, the, the 10,000 joys, 10,000 sorrows of life as it's described at times. You know, or times when our expectations, our hopes are disappointed, our desires frustrated, everything we planned for, worked for, it just falls apart on us. Or we experience the truth of impermanence. Things that we count on don't last. People, events change, and, and often they change in ways we don't like, don't want. We don't find them acceptable. <clears throat> you know, this understanding the reality of impermanence, this is always teaching us about letting go. You could say that impermanence and renunciation are two sides of the same thing. They, they go hand in hand. But, you know, when it's thrust on us this way through loss, through something that, that happens, it can make us feel as though things are being taken away, as, as though we're being attacked by life. Something's gone wrong. You know, we associate this kind of letting go with pain, with loss, maybe with fear. And so really looking deeply, what is our relationship to impermanence? If we connect with a deeper understanding of this truth, we find a deeper, real relationship with it to the rhythms of change and permanence, you know, that hold and, and inform everything. This is a poem by Mary Oliver. It's called In Blackwater Woods. It speaks to this. <clears throat> Look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light, giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds. And every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. 
Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this, the fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things, to love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends upon it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. I recently, <coughs> excuse me. I was reading an article recently by a teacher and uh, and she had quoted a, a Zen master who was asked, what is the secret to your happiness? And the reply was, it's the wholehearted and unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. That's a great, a great way of looking at things. But it points to something really important. You know, whenever we're in a state of non-cooperation with the unavoidable. And, you know, that's life. Life is the unavoidable. (laughs) Brings us (laughs) the unavoidable all the time. When we're not cooperating with the truth of impermanence change, we suffer. And we find ourselves living from a position of resistance and argument. There's no ease there. And this voice saying, it shouldn't be like this, it's wrong. We struggle, fight, push away. We never come to any kind of ease or rest. But our resistance, our arguments, and all our desires and aversions, all these voices, they're they're pointing us towards letting go. So we can listen to them that way. They're telling us, okay, Suffering here, let go. <clears throat> Probably the most challenging and, and certainly ultimately the most liberating aspect of the practice of renunciation, of this understanding, has to do with the renunciation of self view. You know, this goes to the very heart of things, of the matter at hand in the Buddha's teachings in our practice. Once the Buddha was asked if he could summarize his teachings in one short phrase, and he replied, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. This This is the kind of renunciation that leads to the deepest freedom and peace. We see through this fallacy of self view, seeing the emptiness of this, different from any negation of self. But seeing what is self-view, what is this view that arises? We care for ourselves and at the same time we we let go of self-view. See that what it is, it's it's something that's born and shaped in the moment by clinging and arising dependent on what we might hold onto or cling to in the moment. 
doesn't matter what it might be. It's this clinging, this grasping, this identification with experience gives rise to this feeling of I am. It doesn't matter what it is, you know, pain in the body, I am in pain. It's my pain, I'm suffering. An idea that we hold about ourselves. I am this way, I'm that way, it's who I am. Some emotion that arises, I'm sad, I'm happy. Can even cling to knowing, you know, I'm the one who knows, I'm the knower. Anything that arises and that we hold on to and identify with as I, as mine, this is the shifting shape of self-view. It arises in dependence in this way. And then we see those times when nothing is grasped in this way and it doesn't arise, right? It's just this flow, flow of experience at any of the sense doors, this arising and passing. <clears throat> There's no grasping at it. And so suffering, it isn't in, inherent in any of our experiences, right? It's not part of anything that arises. It's, it's not part of body or mind, inherently, intrinsically. It's in our relationship to it, right? It's in the clinging. When there's no clinging, there's no suffering. And there's a way that the Buddha sp- speaks, spoke directly to this and and he spoke about the five aggregates, which are, are called the five aggregates of clinging. This is a part of a teaching by the Thai forest master, Ajahn Buddhadasa. He said, in short, the Buddha taught that dukkha is the five clung to khandas. Khanda, the word for aggregate. These five aggregates of existence, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. This means that anything which is clung to as I or mind is dukkha. When there is no clinging as I and mind, there is no dukkha. Therefore, birth, old age, sickness, death, whatever. If they are not clung to as I or mind have no dukkha, only when there is clinging (coughs) is there suffering. The body and mind are the same. This is important. The body and the mind, they're the same. It's not that dukkha is inherent in them, in body and mind. It's only when there's clinging to them as I and mind that there is suffering. So it's important to understand that the dukkha, it's not inherent in the things of the world, in our minds, in our hearts. It arises dependent on this this movement of clinging in the heart. And so letting go of this, this is the key to freedom, to the end of suffering, the key to peace. And so if we really understand renunciation, really look at it deeply, develop a real relationship there. We start to see that it it goes to the heart of our practice, the heart of the Buddha's teachings. And we see that freedom doesn't come from anything that we get. But freedom, liberation, peace, it's not 
doesn't come from attaining something in practice, but ultimately, always, it comes from letting go, from relinquishment. We see that this really, renunciation, this is the wisest and most compassionate response to suffering in our lives in the world. It's the movement of understanding, of kindness, of care. It's the key that opens the door to freedom. I'm going to end with a a summary of a teaching that the Buddha gave to an ascetic who came to see him. This will be familiar to some of you. It's a very famous teaching. It's really great, though. And this is the Buddha. He's talking to uh, an ascetic, a wanderer named Bahia. He was known as Bahia of the bark cloth. And he had been living in a place and he, he made him, fashioned himself some kind of outfit out of bark, tree bark. You could imagine making a robe out of this birch bark in the woods. And, uh, you know, he was practicing and where he lived, people, you know, were bowing to him and treating him with a lot of respect and, you know, he thought, well, maybe I'm enlightened. You know, everyone's treating me like I'm something special. And he was sincere, but, you know, he was kind of deluded there. And, and a kindly Deva, who apparently had been a relative of his in a past life, came down and said, you know, Bahia, not only are you not enlightened, you're not doing anything that's going to get you anywhere close to it. You're really off track here. And so Bahia, he was sincere. He said, okay, well, well, what can I do? Does, is there anyone who can really teach me? I, I want to understand. He was, he was a real yogi. And so this deva said, well, yeah, the Buddha. Go to find, find him. He's, he's a fully awakened being. He can help you. And so Bahia traveled a long, long ways to find the Buddha. And, and he finally gets there. He gets to the, the town where the Buddha is living at that time, and, and uh, he says, "Where?" He asks the monk, "Where is the Buddha?" And no, oh, he's gone on alms round. He's in the village walking for alms, and, and so Bahia tracks him down. He follows and behind him, and, and he says, "Oh, please teach me something, just anything. Give me a short, a short discourse. I need to know." And the Buddha said, "Now is not the time, Bahia. I'm on alms round." He said, "Oh, please, you know, we don't know how long we'll live. We don't know anything. Life is uncertain. Teach me." No, Bahia, it's not the time. On the third time you ask the Buddha, he usually has to say yes. So he finally says, okay. So he's on alms rain, right? He's got to come up with something short and pithy here. So he says, okay, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the seen, there will be only the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed in reference to the cognized, only the cognized, that this is how you should train yourself. When for you, Bahia, there is only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then, Bahia, there is no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. And when there is no you there, you are neither here nor there, nor in between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. And so it's said that upon hearing this teaching, Bahia 
became fully awakened just then in that moment. And then he, he left and it said that just shortly after that, he was trampled and gored to death by a mad cow. You know, so he had some foresight, oh, I need this teaching maybe. He didn't live, but he was, he, he got that teaching just in time. And so some of the monks asked the Buddha about Bahia afterwards, you know. <clears throat> and he said, oh, Bahia, he, he was a good yogi. <laughs> Became awakened. And he uttered this beautiful poem that I'll finish with, my second ending. This was the, the Buddha's inspired utterance about Bahia. Not about Bahia, but it came in response to questions about what had happened. He said, where water, earth, fire, and wind, no footing find. There burns not any light, nor shines the sun. The moon sheds not her radiant beams, and the home of darkness is not there. When in deep silent hours, the holy sage to truth attains, then he is free from joy and pain, from form and formless worlds released. So we'll have just a short time of quiet, let these words drift away, and then we'll chant the verses of sharing together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.